0: Lauren and I are gonna be talking a little bit today about our uh, recent book, Data Feminism, which has come out this year. Um, And we're gonna dive into some specific examples, but first we wanna spend some time laying out our motivation for writing the book. um, How did it come about and uh, so on. And so maybe from here, I'll just pass to Lauren for our first slide to kick us off. Great,
1: thank you. Um, I'll just echo Catherine by saying, thanks so much for having us. Thank you so much for listening. Um, And we're really looking forward to hearing your thoughts at the end of the presentation. So uh, Catherine and I see data feminism as part of a really growing body of work, um, growing and exciting body of work um, that is holding corporate and government actors accountable for their sexist, racist, and classist data products. So you could think of things like face detection systems that can't see women women of color. Um, That's what you see featured in the screenshot on the left. It comes from a recent piece about the remote proctoring software used to um, proctor the bar exam in the United States, which apparently can't recognize dark faces and they get flagged as cheating and can't complete the test. Um, You could also think of hiring algorithms that Demote applicants that went to all women's schools. We know about this one from a lawsuit filed against Amazon. Um, they were using an algorithm to do their sort of first pass cut of resumes. Um, and lo and behold, they were interviewing only men. Um, and it turned out that uh, that was because they had modeled their system on existing Amazon employees who were predominantly male. Um, and so, women and people with women-sounding features got sort of bumped down in the rankings. Um, you could think of search algorithms that circulate negative stereotypes about Black girls. Um, we've learned about this through Sophia Noble's work in algorithms of oppression on uh, Google and autocomplete and um, search results. Um, there, you know, the examples they 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 could go on. Um, the one you see on the right is the the A-levels fiasco in the UK, where they again used some sort of predictive algorithm uh, intended to replace the fact that um, uh, students had their final exams canceled as a result of the pandemic. Um, But rather than simply feed in students' individual past performance, the model also incorporated the school's past performance. So if you went to a underperforming high school um, or equivalent different names, in the UK, um, you would have your test your score uh, sort of automatically deflated. Whereas if you had gone to a fancier uh, high school, you would get sort of a bump up and actually the students um, took to the streets in anger and the results were uh, invalidated. Uh, thankfully, in any case, you know these examples—they just—they just keep on coming. You know, we could do a whole. I could sit here on this first slide and, and and <laughs> just keep on talking. Um, but uh, you know, I do this just to sort of give you a sense of the motivation uh, for our writing the book. Um, I'm going to pass it back to Catherine.
0: So, yeah. So the fact that these examples keep coming is uh, what motivated us to write this book, right? Um, Eh, So, whereas corporations and some governments have heralded data as the new oil, um, you can see this as this quote up at the top of the slide. um, eh, And they mean this in a good way when they say the new oil. Um, This we like to characterize as a kind of a meme because this came out um, like 2011, 2012 um, and was first dated by The Economist magazine. Um, And then it has been picked up since then by many different sort of corporate actors, CEOs of global corporations and circulated and circulated to the point where you can now watch YouTube clips that are mashups of a bunch of different people, mostly men saying data is the new oil. Um, And it's interesting because the metaphors are somewhat apt, like we use some of the same language to talk about an extractive industry like oil, as we do to talk about an extractive industry like data. Um, So we mine, we clean, we process, um, and ultimately we attempt to convert into profit. And that's really, it's the profit motivation that is the driving this comparison between data and oil because oil is of course a uh, resource that made a few people very, very, very wealthy (laughs) Um, and also had a lot of negative externalities and continues to have a lot of negative externalities for a lot of other people in the world, which aren't taken into account um, in terms of the profits that they generate. Um, And so, you know, We can start to pick apart things like oh the algorithm is racist or oh the data set is not representative Um, but what's frustrating about the examples as they keep coming up in the press is that we never back up and get to the root of the problem Um, and this is what this wave of pushback is really starting to talk about is this idea that in fact data is not the new oil or maybe it is the new oil (laughs) Um, and it is also the same old oppression. It is the same old status quo with the same people on top and the same people exploiting um, the other folks. Um, and this, is, this point is really being made um, by um, black and indigenous women, by women of color, by white women, by indigenous people, immigrant communities, LGBTQ folks and more, um, who are all on the negative end of experiencing these processes of data extraction. Um, So, yeah, we're not the first ones to say that, you know, the root cause here is oppression. But what we explain in the book is how feminism and specifically intersectional feminism, um, which has been focused for so long on dismantling multiple forces of oppression, um, what feminism brings to this conversation, especially as we start to think about how how do we take responsibility for this new world that we've created and how do we engage ethically and for the benefit of um, a broader public? I'll turn it to Lauren.
1: Thanks. Um, So, you know, as Catherine mentioned, um, where we take our inspiration for this project, obviously, as you can tell, also by the title of the book is Feminism. Um, uh, But, and, Um, Feminism means many different things to many different people. So we thought we would begin by just doing some level setting about how we use the term in the book. Um, And we're going to begin with Beyonce um, because that's usually a good idea. And um, what you see here is an image, actually at this point it's pretty old, it's from the 2014 MTV Music Awards um, when Beyonce projected the the word feminist behind her. Um, And she also sings about feminism in her song Flawless where she samples a speech, which turns out to be from the Nigerian author Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, who was quoting in turn what turns out to be um, the American Heritage Dictionary definition of the term.
0: Do you wanna do this one, Catherine, Oh, yeah, so... um... A feminist is uh, feminism is first and foremost a belief. Um, so somebody who believes in equal rights for men and women and non-binary people. So um, that's that's sort of the starting place. Um, we start at equal rights for all genders. Um, but then Merriam-Webster actually gives a second definition because if you're a person who believes in these equal rights, all you have to do is look around you, and if you're data person, look at any data that is gender disaggregated, and you will see that the, these equal rights are not realized. Um, And we can see, I mean, we can quantify, and we have quantified in so many studies how they're not realized in things like healthcare, pay equity, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, And so feminism implies a commitment to action. Um, So we can't just like believe in these things. We have to take action to actually realize these worlds that we want to, See happen. Um, so feminism is organized activity on behalf of women's and non-binary people's rights and interests. Um, and then feminism has a third definition, which and it's a very exciting definition, I think, which and it sometimes gets overlooked outside of academia and even often inside academia, um, which is that feminism is also a set of theories and ideas, which is basically means. It's an intellectual heritage. It's like a vibrant, beautiful body of knowledge that we inherit and that we can use and leverage to think about and take action on the present moment. Um, And so feminist theories and uh, writings begin by thinking through issues of inequality with respect to sex and gender. But then the past 40 years of scholarship and also our current political reality have brought many more dimensions of inequality into the conversation, including race, class, sexuality, ability, and many more things.
1: So this brings us back up to this idea of intersectional feminism and how our view um, and what we say in the book is that feminism right now, um, in the year 2020, must be understood as intersectional. So. As many of you may know, intersectionality is a term coined by the legal scholar, Kimberly Crenshaw, which she uses to explain how social inequality cannot be explained by only one dimension of difference like gender. And when we're talking about inequality or oppression, we must be talking about the intersection of the many factors and forces that produce it. So racism, classism, colonialism, and more. Um, and then the one thing, key thing to understand about intersectionality, and this is a thing that's often overlooked in casual invocations of the term is that intersectionality doesn't just describe markers of individual identity and their effects, right? So like I am white, I am a cis woman, I am a tenure professor, I live in blue state of Georgia. I uh, we were talking about that earlier, anyway. Uh, in any case, intersectionality doesn't just mean sort of what, who, what my positionalities or what my identities are, right? It describes the structural forces of power and their intersection that create the effects that I experience as a result of these identities. Um, and it's really the work of women of color feminists and black feminists in particular that have foregrounded this conversation about forces of power, sort of the root cause of the inequalities and oppressions that any particular individual or group faces. So in short, um, intersectional feminism, which provides the underlying framework for our book, isn't only um, about women, Um, it's not even only about gender, Um, it's about power. it's about who has it and who doesn't. And in today's world data is power. Um, You see this in this idea of data as the new oil that Catherine was talking about earlier. Um, You also see this in the idea of data as the same old oppression And so intersectional feminism, when applied to data science, can help that power be challenged and changed. Um, So our argument basically is that data science needs feminism, um, and intersectional feminism in particular, if we ever hope to overturn these power imbalances.
0: So in writing the book, uh, we asked ourselves what we had learned from all of our own Uh, studies and feminist scholarship, our participation in various activists and scholarly communities, Um, and we looked across a number of domains and disciplines that have taken up feminism, and there's really interesting feminist traditions um, across a really wide range of disciplines, Um, everything from legal scholarship to demography to economics to statistics to human-computer interaction, geography, and more and more. Um, And so we looked across all of these. We didn't read every single paper, but we tried. Uh, And then we came up with these uh, seven principles um, that, for us, encapsulate the most important aspects of intersectional feminism as they relate to data science. And so the goal here um, was not necessarily to make new feminist theory, but to draw from feminist work that exists uh, to provide models that might guide the work of people who are already working with data or who want to work with data, or even for people who want to refuse to work with data. Um, And there are an increasing number of situations where refusal um, and political action may be, the most appropriate response. Um, And so these are these seven principles and they're also the way that we structured the book. So each principle in the book is a chapter. Um, And in each chapter, what we try to do is um, introduce some of the feminist thinkers and scholars and activists who've um, kind of informed that concept, um, whether it's power, binaries, Emotion and embodiment, pluralism, and so on. So, sort of introduce you to the the lineage of thinkers that kind of led to uh, some of these ideas being formulated, um, as well as to show you how folks who are already right now working in data science in various ways, how they are realizing these principles in action. Um, So, we tell a lot of stories in the book and show a lot of examples. and the one thing I'll draw your attention to here, um, you know, we don't have time to go through all the principles today, um, but the one thing I wanna draw your attention to is that um, there are two uh, chapters and they are the first two chapters that deal with power. So this idea of examining power and challenging power. Um, and this is because you know, this um, analysis and then also challenge um, around unequal forces of power, this is the heart of the feminist project um, is, is this um, deep examination of power. Um, So people often ask like what makes this or that thing feminist, Um, it is when it incorporates an analysis of power and takes action to write that balance of power. Um, and so what we're going to do for the rest of the talk is show you some of the examples that emerge from these chapters and that help, I think, to illustrate some of the principles uh, in action. So I'll turn it over to Lauren to talk about examining power.
1: Great. Yeah. So one of the first examples we talk about in the book in the first chapter, which is about examining power is Mimi Onwoha's Library of Missing Datasets. Um, So missing data sets are Onawoha's way of describing data sets that a reasonable person might expect to exist uh, because they address issues of pressing social need, but because of various reasons, they don't actually exist in real life. So um, data sets like trans people killed or injured in instances of hate crime, um, people excluded from public housing because of criminal records, or a more topical example, which is newer than this project, which dates to 2016, um, a gender and race breakdown of the number of people with COVID in the United States. Um, so, ONWOHA exhibits the library of missing data sets as a GitHub repository. That's what you see on the right, it's on GitHub. You can find it if you Google it. Um, and then there's also a physical artwork. Um, that's the file cabinet you see on the left. Uh, the file labeled with the titles of each of these data sets and then you tab through them and in the gallery you would find one that looks interesting to you, open the folder and discover that it's empty um, because the data set is missing. Um, And the point Onoaha wants to make is that they're empty because of forces of power um, and more specifically, a lack of personal, social or political or governmental will that determines um, whether or not these data are collected um, or whether or not certain research is undertaken. And the point again is sort of, once we understand how these forces of power operate and may have overdetermined the questions we might think to ask about our data sets or in our data analysis, we can start to take steps to rebalancing those forces of power and beginning to do the work that we know will um, affect the change that we would like to see in the world.
0: So this next example comes from the second chapter of the book, which is about challenging power. Um, And it also picks up on this idea of these missing data sets. Um, And so uh, the example of feminicide in Mexico um, is another case of uh, missing data sets. Uh, So feminicides are gender-related killings of women and girls. Uh, They include cis and trans women. and they are legally defined as crimes now in 18 countries in Latin America, uh, including Mexico. Um, And that legislation is recent and it's largely thanks to the Latin American feminist movement, which has really pushed this issue into the public eye. Um, If you're interested, you can check out the hashtag Ni Una Menos to start to follow some of that conversation. Um, But uh, folks are angry because even though there are laws on the books, uh, the state still does not have ways of determining whether a death was feminicide or not, does not keep detailed records, isn't tracking the issue or treating the problem with any um, level of seriousness. Um, And so frustrated by this lack of action um, of the state, uh, we tell the story of Maria Salguero. um, And so she's a, person, basically, like, she's not a, she doesn't even call herself an activist, she's not affiliated with an organization, she's sort of like a private individual citizen. Um, But she resolved to head straight towards this problem and collect the missing data herself. Um, And so what she did is she started logging feminicides from reading media reports and news reports. And so she does this work, two to two to four hours a day. um, On top of her job, it's not paid work. Um, And she's now done this for almost five years, um, which means that she has single-handedly compiled the largest archive of feminicides in Mexico, or the largest public archive, I should say. Um, So she's helped families locate loved ones who have gone missing. She's provided her data to journalists and NGOs and activist groups. Um, She's actually testified in front of Mexico's Congress multiple times um, on the matter. Um, And in the book, we talk about this as a form of feminist counter data. Um, And so this is activist data collection that steps in when the state and other institutions have systematically failed to ensure the basic safety of their population. Um, and so we talk about this in the book as one way to use data to challenge power. Um, and of course, it's not the only way, and it's not we would not advocate for collecting counter data or collecting more data in all situations. Um, we talk about data as a double-edged sword uh, in the book. Um, But in terms of at least this particular example, the collection of counter data um, provides a really powerful um, form of visibility to the basic invisibility of the issue um, at the state level. And so once you start looking for this counter data, uh, you can start to see that it shows up in a lot of different places, and it's increasingly a practice in uh, data journalism and data activism. Um, And we can see this, for example, with um, COVID-19 data in the United States context, so we have a sort of compromised uh, political situation in regards to the data surrounding COVID. Um, And so at this point, our most reliable numbers about the pandemic are coming from projects outside of government. So stuff like the New York Times case tracker tracker and the COVID tracking projects, which are both um, projects out of a data journalism lens. Um, And then we have activist groups like Data for Black Lives um, doing audits of who, which states and counties are collecting which data who's disaggregating their data by race and ethnicity so that we can actually start to try to quantify and measure the disparate impacts on uh, black and brown communities in the United States. Um, But then there's still a lot of gaps, even with this kind of data activism, we're still missing comprehensive uh, sex and gender data at the federal level. Um, We're still missing indigenous status, uh, tribal affiliation uh, and so on. So I'll turn it to Lauren. So um, another
1: sort of counter data collection effort that we talk about, actually not sort of total (laughs) counter data collection (laughs) effort that we talk about in the book, um, although we actually don't talk about it in that context, um, is the project undertaken by San Francisco's anti-eviction mapping project. That's what you see here. Um, So since 2013, the AEMP has worked in collaboration with tenants rights organizations and community groups in order to collect and map data about the eviction crisis in the Bay Area um, in, on the West Coast. Um, and so on this map, each red dot indicates a place where a person or a family was evicted. And the blue dots indicate places where the AEMP has also interviewed one of the people who was evicted from that place. And if you click on one of the blue dots, it brings up a video interview, like the one that you see on the right of uh, Phyllis Bowie, who's a midtown resident facing eviction. And we can contrast the AEMP map uh, with the work of the Eviction Lab, which is based at Princeton University. Um, The Eviction Lab's goal is to present a national picture of the eviction crisis. And, you know, this is a really worthy goal. Um, It's a valuable project, but it's really widely different in terms of process. Um, And the reason why uh, we engage it in this chapter on the value of embracing pluralism. Um, So the eviction labs maps derive from seemingly bigger data. Like we seem to be looking at a map of the United States as opposed to just one of San Francisco. Um, The map presents a seemingly more comprehensive picture of the problem of eviction in the United States. Like look at all those dots. Some are big, some are little. It sort of looks more scientific than that map we were looking at before, but um, the AEMP has shown that national real estate databases, like the one that the eviction lab uses as the basis for its analysis, significantly undercount evictions um, because they only count evictions that are like, go to the town or city government office, file the paperwork, get an eviction notice presented to a person. Um, but as we know, there are a lot of different ways that you can be evicted that don't involve being served with a legal notice, right? Like The landlord can like not fix your bathroom or your stove or whatever and make your apartment increasingly uninhabitable, leak in the roof, that's happened to me. Um, Right, their landlord can raise your rent, they can intimidate you, they can answer you, all these things that we know, right? Um, But these are not counted in these national real estate databases. But um, because the AEMP instead works with local communities and community organizations where people come to say like, help me, I'm being evicted or help me, I've just been evicted. The AEMP has actually gathered admittedly messier, um, but much more accurate and much more contextualized contextualized data that actually documents more of the problem. Um, And so in the book, we talk about this again, as sort of what is gained by embracing pluralism. Usually what you gain is actually um, a more accurate and complete picture of the
0: problem it is that you're interested in learning more about. just realized I was on mute. Um, so, so this sort of then begs the question. So we're saying embracing pluralism is the way to go. So bringing more voices into the conversation from different perspectives. Um, but if we're embracing pluralism in the process of doing data science, we can't bring everyone's voice to the table, right? Um, so whose voices do we prioritize? Um, And following, you know, feminist design has a really clear answer about this. So following the work of Sandra Harding, Patricia Hill Collins, and Shawen Barzell, a feminist design perspective would take power into account and center the experiences of people at the margins and the edges first and foremost. And so thinking about how do you make design, um, how do you make decisions and do the design from the outside in? So that's sort of what we're trying to show here in this sort of, a speculative histogram, you know, in a typical design process, you're like, okay, well, let's build a system that works for these, you know, 80% of the people here in this this sort of middle of this distribution. Um, And in fact, a feminist design process would say, well, no, let's build a system that works for the folks at the edges and the margins first. That's who we should work to bring to the table. That's who we should work to develop authentic relationships with um, and that's um, how we make an anti-oppressive uh, system. Um, and this is really uh, embodied by the work of the Design Justice Network as well. If you haven't uh, seen their work, it's really incredible. Um, one of their uh, design principles relates directly to this. And so they say, we center the voices of those who are directly impacted by the outcomes of the design process. Um, so in a sense, this is thing about like, who has the most to lose from any given uh, data science product or project? Um, and that's who you want at the table. That's, that's, that's what we're aiming for. So
1: um, thus far, we've talked mostly about the issue of power and people, right? Um, so people who have power and people who don't. Um, But another major idea that comes from feminism relates to structures of power, sort of theoretical structures of power, and more specifically, binary structures that are defined by a hard distinction between two groups. Um, So feminist theory has helped to show how these binary distinctions are usually hiding a hierarchy um, with one group on top and the other on the bottom, artificially imposed. Um, And then once you sort of start to see the hierarchy, you start to understand how the hard line between those groups is there, the reason why it's there, Um, It's to ensure that the one group that has been artificially or socially positioned on top stays on top and all all the other groups don't sneak up and in. Um, so obviously you know the distinction between the idea of man and the idea of woman, this is the obvious reference point and was indeed the starting point um, for a lot of feminist theory, um, both because it's a clear example of a false binary, right? There are more than two genders. Um, and it's also an example of an unequal hierarchy, right? Among these genders, no particular one is better uh, inherently than any of the others. But one of the key moves of feminist theorists is to take this critique of the gender binary um, and use it to question other binaries and hierarchies that we encounter in the world, Um, like the distinction between nature and culture, or subject and object, um, or the one that I'm going to talk about a little bit more now, um, the distinction between reason and emotion. So in an Anglo-Western context um, in which we we live and teach, um, we've been sort of taught that reason is somehow better than emotion, right? And we see this play out in data and in this particular example in data visualization. So um, best practices for data visualization often involve a clean design, um, a minimalist aesthetic, sort of presenting just the facts. But the question remains, um, why are these our best practices? Uh, Especially when research has shown that we interpret these aesthetic choices just as emotionally. Um, We tend to believe that these types of charts are more truthful than they actually are. So you could think of, for example, research by Jessica Holman. Um, She's an information visualization. Um, She's shown that just including a source line for the data makes people trust an image more. It doesn't matter whether the credit line actually describes an actual source as an active link or not, um, just needs to be there. Um, But what about the opposite? Um, Visualizations that deliberately leverage emotion. And that's what this example um, helps us explore. So uh, the the image that you're looking at is actually a screenshot from an animated visualization. That's a number of the gun-related deaths in the United States in a particular calendar year. Um, and so it's by the design firm Periscopic. Um, so each of the people killed by a gun in that year is represented as a single arc. That's what you see in the smaller black image on the left. Um, and the, they're traced one by one onto the screen and they get faster and faster um, until and sort of more and more uh, overla- overlaid with each other until they create this uh, sort of semicircular web that you see in the larger image, um, and it's it's really overwhelming to watch. Um, you know, it becomes almost unbearable because you think it should be done. You think that enough people have been killed for the you know for it to just stop, um, but it keeps on going and it keeps on going for much longer um, than you think it should. And that's that's really the point, right? There are it goes on for too long because there are too many people being killed by guns in the United States. It really is an epidemic um so just methodologically it's no less statistically sound than you know, any other particular study um the data about the people derived from a national crime data set released by the u.s federal government um, their projected lifespans are determined using a statistical model from the world health organization um but it was viewed with real suspicion from the visualization community because it made us feel things um And a feminist approach here would say that's not a problem at all, uh, that it made us feel things. And in fact, it's actually a more compelling visualization because it blends reason with emotion. And um, sort of once you open yourself up to rebalancing these two uh, non-binary things, you know, reason and emotion, they can coexist together. What you find is that the data communication toolbox really expands and allows us to focus on what really matters when we're designing anything, right? So honoring the context of the data, listening to lived experience, and taking the action that we want to take in order to challenge some of these imbalances of power that we encounter in our lives.
0: So if it isn't already apparent, uh, the principles of data feminism apply to every stage of a data science project from inception and funding to production, circulation and impact in the world. So, you know, we can't can't start in the middle uh, where we're doing data cleaning and like fix the biased data there. Like we have to fix the whole pipeline basically. Um, And so uh, we talk about you know, projects that are feminist in content, like topically they're focused on feminist issues, projects that are feminist in forms, they take on and expand our ideas around what forms are correct and proper for any given subject of study, um, as well as projects that are feminist in process. Um, And so a feminist process involves kind of uh, injecting, A kind of feminist perspective into all of these um, stages of the data processing pipeline to really thinking through how issues of inequality touch all of these stages um, and all of the internal workings like how does a team work together all of these different things who leads the team who provides the funding who speaks on behalf of the project who's credited with the work all of these things have to do with these root causes of inequality. Um, And so, yeah, so this brings us to the final point that we wanted to make before the Q&A. And this might be obvious from the examples that we've shown so far, but we like to try to uh, double emphasize it and be redundant about it. Um, And it's this. It's that data feminism really insists on an expanded definition of data science. And so this expanded definition is not defined by the size of the data set. It's not defined by the credentials of the people undertaking the work or the eliteness of their institutions. Um, These kinds of concerns are continually used to exclude women and people of color from the field, um, as well as to exclude work whose contribution is socio-technical rather than purely technical. Um, And so if we expand our definition of data science, Um, then we can really clearly see that some of the most exciting work uh, being done today, especially when we think about like data science for social good or data science for justice, um, that work's being done by artists, by journalists, by humanists, by community organizers, by activists, by librarians. Um, And some of it does look like traditional data science. So um, here we wanna give a shout out to Margaret Mitchell and her team at Google. Um, So they've done this research on bias and natural language processing techniques, which is here in the paper that you see on the far left. But then next to Margaret's work is, for example, this uh, interactive AI, basically a sculptural chatbot. You can like walk up to the sculpture and talk to it. Um, And it's by the artist Stephanie Dinkins. Um, and, but the chatbot has exclusively been trained on a dialogue between three generations of black women that come from the artist's own family. Um, so it has a very particular way of answering you, um, a very limited, like intentionally limited training data set. Um, and then on the right uh, is the Puddings inventive and fun data journalism. Um, and so this examines gender bias in Hollywood screenplays. Um, And then below the image, uh, long image that's um, green is a group called Data Therapy who works with community-based organizations and does workshops with them around uh, data literacy. Um, And then it results in the production of what they call data murals grounded in the communities that these organizations serve. and so we have hundreds of, examples of like, uh, hundreds of examples like this in the book, um, which we selected to illustrate our points and inspire readers to take action. Um, because we see, and we try to detail in the book that data is at the root of many of the problems that we experience, and yet at the same time, it can also be part of the solution. So I will just turn to Lauren for this last slide. Sure, so we just
1: wanted to end with some specific things that you can do. Um, So uh, examine power, Uh, do work that interrogates and exposes sexism, racism, and other forces of oppression. Um, Examine how those forces show up in data and in the world. Um, Collect counter data and missing data. Um, Introduce new communities to data science and data tools. Um, and use data to advocate for equity at your institution. And I should say uh, universities are a particularly rich site both for counter data collection and for these data-driven um, uh, advocacy efforts um, in the interest of greater equity. Um, experiment with creative forms of data presentation and communication, so quilt, sculptures, murals, VR, fashion shows. Um, include more people and data-driven projects, especially impacted communities. Um, and in particular, center the work uh, and knowledge of minoritized people and follow their leadership. I feel like this is a message, especially to people who direct uh, research projects. This doesn't just mean at the end point, this means at the beginning as well. And finally, make sure you credit your sources and your research support stuff, um, make your process transparent
0: and reflect on your own identity. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Um, Here are many ways to be in touch with us um, here. We would really welcome hearing from folks. Um, Maybe the one last point that we'll mention is the URL that's at the top of the slide, datafeminism.io. That's the book's website. Um, And if you go there and click on read, read book or read online or something like that, um, that will take you to the open access version of Data Feminism. So the book is uh, open access and free for reading online.